On April 18, 1942, just four months after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Doodlittle led a squadron of 16 B-25 bombers off the deck of the carrier Hornet. After that terrible devastation at Pearl Harbor, the United States military early on in the war was desperate for a victory of some kind. Morale was low. There's not much they could do. They, they wanted especially one that would strike at the very heart of the supposedly untouchable Japanese Empire. So their target was Tokyo. The B-25 bombers were stripped down to the bare bones. They had to lighten them enough so they could take off, off, off an aircraft carrier. If you imagine a bomber taking off on that short deck of an aircraft carrier? They lightened their loads. The pilots were trained to take off from the deck. The planes did not carry enough flue to bring them back to the carrier. For a couple of reasons, they couldn't land on the carrier. That would have been impossible. Their objective was to bomb Tokyo and hope and pray they could make it to the Chinese mainland and crash land or parachute out over territory not held by the Japanese. At worst, it was a suicide mission. At best, it, it wasn't much better. One of the airmen on that mission was a bombardier named Jacob DeShazer. He was a corporal in the United States Army Air Corps. He flew plane number 16, the last one to take off the deck. And after Jake DeShazer and his crew successfully bombed a factory and oil storage facility, they became lost in a dense fog and were forced to parachute over China in the total darkness. As DeShazer was falling to earth, he wondered if he should pray. He'd been raised in a Christian home, but he had drifted away from his faith during those high school years. So he decided that it would be hypocritical to pray now, <laughs> after spending so many years away from God. Yet at that very moment, in a small town in Oregon, his mother was suddenly awakened from a dream in which she was dropping through the air in the dark. She wasn't even aware that Jake was on a dangerous secret mission, but she prayed for him until the Lord lifted her burden. DeShazer and the other men came down over Japanese-occupied China, and they were captured. Three were executed on the spot. The rest were imprisoned, beaten, tortured, and starved. Jacob DeShazer endured 40 months in a prison camp. Most of the time he was alone in a five-foot-by-eight-foot cell with a small slit in the door. The cell was an oven in the summertime and it was a walk-in freezer in the winter. He was often sick, and at times his, his body was covered with boils like Job's. And Jake recalled, my hatred for the enemy nearly drove me crazy. A fellow captive, Lieutenant Robert J. Metter, told him, Jesus Christ is the key to getting through all of this. A few days later, Lieutenant Metter died of malnutrition. So DeShazer asked his captors for a Bible, and he was allowed to have a Bible for just three weeks, three weeks of Bible in 1944. He read that Bible through, and he committed as much of the Word of God to memory as he could. He memorized the whole Sermon on the Mount and the entire epistle of 1 John. And he was amazed at how clearly the Old Testament prophecies depicted the life of Christ. But one sentence in the Gospels had a profound impact on his life. Jesus' prayer from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. 
Jake DeSager renewed his commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and his hatred was replaced by Christian love. He says, I realize that these people did not know my Savior. If Christ is not in a person's heart, it's natural to be cruel. I was afraid I was going to die, and I told God, I don't want to come to you with empty hands. I want to do something for Jesus before I die. One of the guards delighted in beating and kicking DeShazer for every infraction. On one occasion, the guard slammed the iron door shut on Jake's foot because he didn't think Jake was moving fast enough. And Jake says the pain was incredible. Remembering the Sermon on the Mount, he wondered, how could Jesus expect me to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me? But he knew God was calling him to do exactly that. The next morning when the guard came by the cell, Jake stood on the throbbing foot, put his face in the slit in the door and said, Good morning, in Japanese. Jake continued to show kindness to the guard and within a few days the guard stopped beating him and started bringing him extra food. On August 10, 1945, Jacob DeShazer sensed God calling him was calling him to pray for peace. He had no way of knowing that just two days earlier, two Japanese cities had been leveled by atomic bombs, but for several hours, he prayed. Five days later, Japan surrendered, and Jake and his fellow captives were set free. So Jake attended a college and a seminary, and he wrote a little Christian tract called, I Was a Prisoner in Japan, and that was distributed all throughout post-war Japan. And three days after Christmas in 1948, Jacob DeShazer arrived in Japan as a missionary. When the Japanese people asked him why he would come back to a country that had imprisoned him, he told them about the love of Jesus. Soon after his arrival in Japan, he was introduced to Mitsu Fuchida. You won't recognize that name, but Fuchida was the Japanese pilot that had led the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th. 1941. Fuchida had read DeShazer's track and received Jesus Christ as his Savior. And so DeShazer and Fuchida became close friends, and Fuchida spent the rest of his life as an evangelist spreading the gospel throughout Asia. The Japanese people were amazingly responsive to the gospel in those post-war years. The people wanted to know the truth, DeShazer recalled. They had been taught that the emperor of Japan was a god. After the war, when the emperor admitted he was just a human being, a lot of Japanese young people lost all faith and committed suicide. When we came to Japan and told them about the Lord, they said, we've never heard anything like this before. Jacob DeShazer spent 30 years as a missionary in Japan, living out what the Apostle Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. Paul describes the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and now that we've heard it illustrated, listen once again to the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not committing their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. 
We need to understand this ministry of reconciliation as modeled by Jacob de Shazer, because this ministry has been given to each one of us. It has been trusted to us, all of us who believe in Jesus Christ. It's part and part of our calling, part and parcel of our calling, that, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to, world to himself, and writes Paul here in verse 19, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, if we're called and given this ministry of reconciliation, we need to know what it is, why it is needed, and how important it is. Because if we truly understand it, like Jacob de Shazer, we will want it not only for ourselves, but for others. So turn once again to Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 5, verse 9. The fifth chapter of Romans, the ninth verse where we started this morning. In this ninth verse of Romans chapter 5, Paul summarizes and restates what we have been studying for weeks in this great book. And after saying in verse 8 that God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Paul has much more to say. Notice he begins verse 9 with, much more than. Whenever I read that in Paul, I always think of those commercials of the guy doing the Ginzu knives or whatever is on TV. But wait, there's more if you act now. <laughs> you know, you know, that's the excitement that Paul has here. Wait, there's more. Verse 9, much more than. Now having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. It's important to grasp Paul's much more line of reasoning here. To send Christ to shed his blood, to die on the cross for our sins, is the big thing. That's the big thing. It's the only way that God could maintain his righteousness, maintain his justice, and not violate that, and at the same time forgive unrighteous, ungodly sinners. It took the blood of Christ. It took Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. For God to justly forgive us. The word is propitiation, satisfaction, that through the propitiation in Christ's blood, God can now be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus satisfied God's justice by his blood. And by the blood of Jesus, God can then justly justify ungodly sinners, that is, declare them righteous, put sinners in right standing with God. So if God loved us enough to send Christ to die for us, big thing, most important thing, Christ dying for our sins, if God loves us so much to do the big thing, Paul adds, then how much more will he save us from the wrath to come? Not as big a thing. But if he already did the big thing, he's going to do all these other things. Christ didn't die for our sins, big thing. And then at some point, we're going to stand before God, judgment. And it's all we called null and void. No, Christ did the big thing, and all the other things necessarily have to take place. Here Paul wants us to know how we can be sure that on that awful day, the day of judgment, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Then Paul repeats the same idea in verse 10, but with a different slant. Verse 10 of Romans chapter 5, it's a parallel verse stating the same basic idea, but with a, a different focus. Verse 10, 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now see if you can follow this a little bit. Uh, In verse 9, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He saved us and we were justified. Verse 10, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. He saved us and we were reconciled. While we were sinners, we were justified. While we were enemies, we were reconciled. Justification looks at salvation from the legal standpoint. While reconciliation looks at salvation from the relational point of view. How amazing that God would be reconciled to his enemies. The word enemies is the strongest in a string of synonyms that Paul uses to describe our condition before Christ saved us. What was our condition before Christ saved us? In verse 6 here of chapter 5, he says, we were helpless, which means that we were totally unable to do anything to save ourselves or to help out in the process. Again, in verse 6, he says, we were ungodly. We were ungodly because of our many sins. In verse 8, he says, we were sinners, having violated God's holy commandments. But worst of all, he says, we were God's enemies, The word enemy implies active hostility both from our side towards God and God's side toward us. From our side, before we came to Christ, we did not want to submit to God's rightful lordship over our lives. We wanted to block him out of our lives so that we could do what we wanted to do. As someone said, we viewed God as the spoiler of all our fun. Paul describes our enmity towards God in verse 7 of Romans chapter 8. He says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. The mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. Now, there might be people who say, Well, no, it's not that bad. I, I'm not hostile towards God. I don't have anything against God. But they show their hostility by their indifference to his love. They're happy if he just stays out of their lives and lets them live as they please. In this sense, they are enemies of God. But more than that, sin has put us completely in the wrong with God. An enemy is not somebody who just comes up a little short of being a friend, right? It means somebody who's in the opposite camp, just as much as Jake DeShazer was in the opposite camp as a prisoner of war. Sinners are God's enemies. But while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Now, as I mentioned, while justification is a legal term that puts us in right standing with God, reconciliation is a relational term that puts us in right relationship with God. So what is reconciliation? What does it matter Imagine there's two friends, and these two friends have a big fight and an argument, and the good relationship that they once enjoyed is strained to the point of breaking. They stop talking to one another. Communication is deemed too awkward. The friends gradually drift apart, and they become strangers. Such estrangement can only be reversed by reconciliation. To be reconciled basically means to be restored to friendship or to to harmony. When old friends restore restore their friendship and resolve their differences and restore their relationship, 
then reconciliation has occurred. And the Apostle Paul declares that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, are given the ministry of reconciliation. That means like Jake DeShazer, we are to be fervent in it. So I want to talk a little bit about what it takes to be reconciled, and then we're going to break down the terms that are related to this. Because the Lord has entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation. If sinners are going to be reconciled to God, if husbands and wives are going to be reconciled to each other, if parents are going to be reconciled with their children, if we're going to be reconciled with others, with one another, as Jesus commanded us in the Sermon on the Mount, which Jake DeShazer memorized, then it's crucial that we know how this whole process of reconciliation works. Because if someone were to come to you and they said, you know, we're having trouble in our marriage, how would you encourage them to be reconciled? If someone came to you and said that he was estranged from his parents, what would be your counsel? If someone came to you and said they're far from God, what would you say? So I'm going to give you a simple formula. Then I'm going to show you how it works in relationship to Christ as our example. The formula is this. Repentance plus forgiveness equals reconciliation. When you have repentance and you have forgiveness, then you have reconciliation. And this is how, because this is how it works with God. Jesus forgave all of our sins, or God forgave all of our sins through Jesus paying the penalty and dying on the cross. That's forgiveness. When we repent of our sins and receive his forgiveness, then we're reconciled to God. God forgives, we repent, we're reconciled to God. God forgives, I repent. I'm reconciled to God. So I want to apply that to earthly relationships, and then we're going to break it down so we can understand what it means. Because on the one hand, I have known husbands who have cheated on their wives. They have honestly been broken over their sin. They've repented, and they've sought the forgiveness of their wives. But there still hasn't been any reconciliation. The relationship is still a train wreck. Why? Because the wife refused to forgive. On the other hand, I've seen the most forgiving of wives, and her husband promises not to do it again, but there's no reconciliation. Why? Because there's been no godly sorrow that leads to repentance. There's no true repentance. If part of the formula is missing, there'll be no reconciliation, no godly restoration of the relationship. So let's break it down beginning with what it means to forgive. What it means to forgive. And so understand what it means to forgive. Turn over to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Page 1432. The fourth chapter of Ephesians, the 32nd verse, the last verse in that fourth chapter. Paul has been talking about how we as Christians are to be in right relationship with one another. And then in verse 32 of Ephesians chapter 4, he adds, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, What? Forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Notice that we are to forgive one another. How? In the same way that God in Christ has forgiven us. What exactly did Jesus do in order to forgive us? 
He bore the penalty of our sin. He paid the entire cost of our sin. Jesus paid it all. And so with this in mind, let me give you a practical definition of forgiveness. In application, it doesn't get much better than this. Here's a practical application. I don't think I got this in the notes, but you'll get the idea here. Forgiveness is this. If you hurt me in any way, if you hurt me in any way, whether it's something you said or something you did or something you broke, <laughs> if you hurt me in any way, forgiveness means I will not make you pay in any way, any way for what you did to me. I will bear the consequences myself willingly and purposefully. Forgiveness means I will not make you pay in any way for what you did to me. I will bear the consequences myself. That's what Jesus did on the cross, didn't he? That's what Jesus did on the cross. You see, every sin has hurtful consequences. Somebody gets hurt. Every insult, every malicious act causes pain and injury. Every indifference causes pain and injury. Archibald Hart on Focus on the Family years ago said it this way. Forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt you for hurting me. Forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt you for hurting me. Forgiveness will cost you something. It may cost you a lot. Make no mistake about it. Forgiveness means that you bear the loss yourself. You may bear that loss every day for the rest of your life. That's why Jesus said we forgive seven times 70. My forgiveness means that I will bear the hurt, the pain, the consequences, the loss, whatever it is, willingly and purposefully. Forgiveness means you take the hit and you never try to get even. Now, you can only do that, incidentally, at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. I wish we had more time to go into this this morning because it's so important. Forgiving others always begins at the foot of the cross. You go before God first at the foot of the cross. We're all messed up if we think forgiveness begins with the offender. We have it all turned around if we're waiting for the offender to do something before we forgive them. Is that how God forgave us in Jesus Christ? As soon as you get your life together, as soon as you promise not to do that anymore, then I'm going to die on the cross for you, and I'm going to bear that penalty. That's not it at all. You see, forgiveness is always our response before God, no matter what the offender's response is before us. Forgiveness is always our response before God, no matter what the offender's response is before us. I'm not talking about reconciliation yet. I'm still talking about forgiveness. Forgiveness paves, paves the way of reconciliation, but the two are not the same because we haven't talked about repentance first. But forgiveness is the radical surgery. Reconciliation is the healing after the operation. So I want to briefly talk about those things that are not forgiveness because we often wait to forgive until we see one of these things happen. But all these are opposed to forgiveness. They all begin with the letter R, and they're probably not in this exact order in the outline this morning. They are restitution, retribution, retaliation, and revenge. None of those are forgiveness. All of these are just another way of getting even, which is not forgiveness. Now, restitution is a great legal concept. Even in the Old Testament, it's there. In Exodus chapter 21, the law says, If you dig a pit on your own property... 
and your neighbor's ox wanders over and falls into your pit and dies, you replace your neighbor's ox because it was your pit that did in your neighbor's ox. That's restitution, but it's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is if your neighbor bore the loss of his ox willingly. It says, I forgive you for that. You don't have to give the ox. Give me another ox. That's, that's forgiveness. In fact, one of the New Testament words for forgiveness means the cancellation of a debt. You're free and clear here. Forgiveness is the owner didn't pers- purposely make you pay him back. Now, in principle, there's nothing wrong with restitution, but requiring restitution is not forgiveness. But what if your three-year-old stumbles into your neighbor's unprotected pool and drowns. No amount of restitution is going to make up for that loss. So retribution is related to restitution, but it's not a like-for-like concept, an ox for an ox, because the drowned child cannot be replaced, so something else is demanded to make up for it, and that's going to be retribution. Now, both restitution and retribution are reserved for legal matters and for the law of God in the Old Testament. But any time you exact something from somebody else, then it's not forgiveness. And, of course, retaliation and revenge, we know those. They're not even options for believers. Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Restitution, retribution, retaliation, revenge, all of these things are just another way of trying to get even. But they're not forgiveness. Now, at times, the courts of our land will award restitution and retribution. And there's nothing wrong with that. God established government for the protection of its citizens. God grants the government authority to exact restitution and retribution. However, don't confuse these with forgiveness. Forgiveness means that I will not make you pay in any way for what you did to me. I will bear the consequences myself willingly. Forgiveness plus, plus what? Now we come to repentance. Forgiveness plus repentance equals reconciliation. What does repentance mean? To understand repentance, turn to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, verse 10. Second Corinthians chapter 7, the 10th verse, page 1417. Here Paul is contrasting godly sorrow, a sorrow that leads to repentance, with what is really just worldly regret, where there's no repentance. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about what is worldly regret? What is Paul talking about here? Paul says it leads to death. It leads to death because there's no repentance. There's no turning to God. Now, worldly regret is being sorry that you got caught. Worldly regret is being truly sorry for the pain or the damage that you may have caused. But worldly regret promises to never do it again, but it has no power, no ability. It's really just promises 
that are ready to be broken because there's no true repentance. All kinds of people have worldly regret. You see it almost every day on TV these days. Yeah, I'm sorry, I take full responsibility. So there, be done with it, you know? <laughs> the opposite is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to true change. It leads to a, a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of life, a change of behavior. And the key to godly sorrow that leads to repentance is the word godly. The word godly. Let me make it as simple as I can. When King David sinned against Bathsheba in committing adultery with her, he sinned against Uriah how? By having him killed. He sinned against the nation because the sins of the king are always against the nation. Put that on Facebook, see how it flies in Washington, D.C. <laughs> these days. <laughs> yeah. When he had done all these sins, he cried out to God in his great psalm of repentance. Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You're going, no, wait a minute, David. You sinned against everybody here. When he says against you and you only have I sinned, he's not saying that he didn't sin against others, but godly sorrow that leads to repentance is a recognition that all sin, every sin, is against the holy God. It's against God. Sin is an affront against holy God, and until that is acknowledged, there's no repentance. When I forgive and the one who sinned against me has a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, knowing that they've sinned against God, then there is reconciliation. But we have one more verse to talk about in Romans chapter 5, verse 11, which allows us to conclude on a different note here. After all this heavy stuff this morning, because Paul says we also exalt in God. Verse 11 of Romans 5, and not only this, but wait, there's more. We also exalt in God, glory in God, joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Here again, we see one of the great assurances of salvation. It's joy, joy. So I want to end it this way. What happens when a dog enters a concert? <laughs> Max Licato tells the story about a night in Lawrence, Kansas, when the oldest continually operating orchestra in the world was playing in Lawrence, Kansas one night. It was hot that night, so the doors were opened. Hawk Auditorium was not air-conditioned. Bright lights with formal dress and furious music, and the result is a heated orchestra. Orchestra. So they open the doors on each side of the stage and hope that a breeze will start to come through. Inner stage right, a dog. A brown generic Kansas dog. Not a mean dog. We had a Kansas dog for 17 years. Not a mean dog. Not a mad dog. Just a curious dog. He passes through the basses, through the cellos, through the violin section. His tail wags with the beat of the music. Had he passed on through the orchestra, the music might have continued. Had he made his way across the stage into the motioning hands of a stagehand, the audience may not have even noticed. But he didn't leave. He stayed at home in all the splendor. The musicians laughed. The audience laughed. The dog looked up at the conductor and panted, and the conductor put down his baton. 
the most historic orchestra in the world, one of the moving, most moving pieces ever written, all night, a night wrapped in glory and brought to a stop by a wayward dog. The conductor stopped, stepped off the podium, scratched the dog behind the ears, the tail wagged again, the maestro spoke to the dog for a few seconds and then led him off the stage and the people laughed. Lucato wrote, can you find you and me in this picture? I can, just call us Fido. <laughs> and consider God the maestro and envision the moment when we will walk onto his stage. We won't deserve to be there. We will not have earned it. We even may surprise the musicians with our presence. The music will be none like we've ever heard. We'll stroll among the angels and listen as they sing. We'll gaze at heaven's lights and gasp as they shine. And we'll walk next to the maestro, stand by his side, and worship as he leads. He, too, will welcome us. He, too, will speak to us. But he will not lead us away. He will invite us to remain forever as guests on his stage. So not only is the powerful deliverance available through Christ, but through him we continue to rejoice. He is the one who made our reconciliation with God possible. At the heart of God's redemptive plan stands one solitary figure, Jesus Christ, his son, our savior. Through his death, he has made it possible for those of us who believe to receive forgiveness of our sins and enter into the eternal relationship of joy with God, our Father. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, I just keep thinking of that song. I just can't wait for that first morning in heaven over and over and over and over and over and over again. But Paul says, we rejoice, we exalt in our reconciliation now, Lord. I thank you for the joy that you give us. I thank you for the hope that you give us in glory, Father. I thank you for the love. And Father, I do pray that as we experience all of these things, Lord, in relationship to you, that through your Holy Spirit, you would give us the desire that those that we know, people who we know that don't live for Christ, don't act for Christ, don't believe in Christ really, Lord, that there would be something of our joy and exaltation and our love, the love you have for us that we would want for others, Father. I pray that through the ministry of Grace Baptist Church and the dear people that we have here, Father, that we would have a ministry of reconciliation in our community, Lord, where people will come to you in faith in Jesus Christ and first be reconciled to you, God, and then reconciled one with another. And for this we do pray in Jesus' name.